0: Today we get to celebrate Pastor Reed being here with us, Pastor Tommy Reed, and uh, from the Tabernacle in Buffalo, New York. And I would say, I'm sure he'll do a better job of introducing, but one of the people that has truly changed my life. Uh, He was here a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, whenever I was installed, we were installed uh, here at the summit. And I remember that day clearly. Uh, the, I remember the words you said it's, it's like it happened yesterday and so we want to we wanna just say thank you for making the trip Pastor Joe for coming and uh, being the armor bearer and being able to uh, be with us and the amount of wisdom that, uh, that you all have shared with me privately has been, has been amazing and I know today publicly uh, you met with our leaders which was awesome yesterday and uh, so for those of you joining online and in the room would you please welcome Bishop Tommy Reed.
1: Thank you. Mm-hmm. you let me sit down, right? I let you sit down, yep. I think it's because of my age, right?
0: Uh, well, <laughs> we're all good. So welcome to the summit again. Thank you for being here and uh, and I can't wait to talk about the Father, both naturally and supernaturally, uh, spiritually, what fatherhood really means. And uh, no better person can I think of than to have you with us and share what fatherhood means to you. So the first thing, we, we, for those of you who are at the leadership uh, meeting, we talked a lot about different things, but we didn't talk about the topic of fatherhood. And so uh, I want you to open up with whatever the Lord wants to share, and then I've got a few questions for you.
1: Well, I'm going to ask you a question. (laughs) (laughs) You might know I start like that. What do you think best defines a father?
0: I think that a father sees the destiny in his children and is willing to take the risk to call it out and walk with them until they see it come to fruition.
1: If I heard you right, you you think a father is one that should, A, you said, see the destiny of his children and call it out of them. Mm-hmm. I think I agree with you.
0: Good. Yes, I, I do agree. That's That's good. We're, we're getting somewhere.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look at how Father deals with us, because... Jesus first told us, if we're going to pray, you're going to have to use the term our father Hmm. because we address God as a father. So he becomes the ultimate of our definition of father. I think number one, a father is one who not only speaks life into first, he gives life to the child through his own body, he gives life to the child. Then as he raises the child, I know with, in my life, my dad was the one that shaped my life. By what he said, how he led, uh, how he was to me, be, he began to shape my life. And I was not at all like my father. I was like my mother much more than my father. But I watched my dad take me like a piece of clay and begin to make me into kind of his image. I'm very different than my father, but I began to change to be like my dad. I didn't like it at first. I didn't necessarily want to be like him, but all of a sudden I saw the value in that. And I think one of the dangers of fatherhood is that father has to be someone who shapes our life by his life. It has to be more than words. It has to be shaping by taking and showing us the example.
0: So don't you think that when we think about Father God, that everything that we see in the natural, everything that we see was in Him, and He released it. It came from Him. He was the source. But there, there is a creation process we know in fatherhood But then there's a sustaining process in fatherhood. And there are a lot of people I believe in the world today that are creating, but they're not sustaining. And so they're not true fathers. So you talked about your father shaping who you are. That's the sustaining part of fatherhood that I think many people miss.
1: I think it was a process of change uh, because we all inherit the characteristics of both a mother and a father. And uh, somehow, as I grew up, I spent more time with my mother. In those days, father never, my dad was a chef, so he never got home at the table to eat with us. Uh, by the time he got home at night, he was tired. So it was my mother that was shaping my life more than my father, because that was where I was spending my time. Mm-hmm. But as further out of life, he was able to give me more time, all of a sudden I realized there were things that I needed to learn from him. For instance, uh, I think growing up in my early years, having my mother as the major influence, uh, I became fearful. I was afraid of life. Uh, I was concerned for life. My dad wasn't concerned for life at all <laughs> i remember one time at my grandmother's house uh it's a wonder he didn't kill himself because he was always going beyond the limits and i was always the person who was afraid of the limits but i remember one day uh, he uh, wanted to have some fun so he put a pair of skis on and he skied down from the upper floor of my grandmother's house to the bottom He almost killed himself. but He was a daring person. He was an athlete. He was a professional football player, a uh, professional boxer. You can go back to the records and read about my dad. And uh, uh, I was born with some uh, characteristics and some concerns as far as balance is concerned far as being able to see a ball to catch it. So I didn't have the normal tendencies. You know, my dad was that big athlete, and and all of a sudden I was trying, but I couldn't do it like he did it. Uh, And my dad had to take that and teach me to be masculine like himself, to be fearless like himself. I think he did a pretty good job of that. I. I became a person without fear, and yet I wasn't born like that. I was born with apprehensions, and Dad taught me, you know, you can't be afraid. You've got to just go out and take it, take the world on. It's time to take the world. And in, if I'm hearing you correctly,
0: that came because there was dedicated time committed to what he saw in you.
1: Uh, you know, There was time, yes, of course there has to be time. Uh, But there was something about him that he had to teach me that he loved who I was, but there were things about my life that he was going to make me change. He was gonna have to make me because, you know, being raised mostly by a woman at home I, uh, I, I don't know that all women would do this. My, my mother was, had fears in her life. And I began to begin to gravitate toward the fact that I was afraid of life and I was concerned for life. And my dad taught me, ski down the, the stairs <laughs> and, on a pair of skis. You can't be afraid of anything. And he took me and shaped me to be like himself. I don't know how he did that, but he did that.
0: So what are some other things that you would say your father taught you that you took away from, from that relationship?
1: I think number one was fearlessness. I have to be able to face life fearlessly and do what you're supposed to do. Just get on with life. And forget your fears and forget the things that apprehensions about and get on with life and get on the pair of skis and ski down and and just take life on. I learned that from my dad.
0: So after all the things that transpired in your life, you you obviously dealt with the fear issue and then you traveled the world and uh, and
1: was able to travel with your father. Well, I, I think you taught me faith too. Uh, We went on our first missions trip in 1959, and uh, we went overseas to the Philippines with a one-way ticket and no money to buy the ticket home. I mean, it was pretty stupid when you think of it. Uh, I have no idea, but my dad was absolutely fearless. He said, God told us to go. We've got enough money to buy a one-way boat ticket on a freighter to the Philippines, and we're going to go. And when we got there, we had no place to preach, nothing to do. And I thought, Dad, what in the world are you doing to us? We've gone, we're 10,000 miles away from home. We don't have enough money to pay the hotel bill. We don't have enough money to stay here. Why in the world did you do this? And, uh, and then he got sick. He got so sick that we realized he was dying And we were 10,000 miles away from home And I remember walking to the hotel room one day And sitting by his bedside Realizing that this is really serious We're 10,000 miles away from home Why in the world are we here? Why has he done this to us? And he looked at me and he said That phone is going to ring And when it rings It will be Springfield, Missouri On the phone, the headquarters Of the Assemblies of God And I said, well why are they going to call us? Because they're going to appoint us as pastors of Bethel Temple. Now, Bethel Temple was the largest church in the Assemblies of God. It had 7,000 members. It was built by Lester Summerall. It was part of the healing revivals of the 1950s. And it was the most prized church to pastor in the entire denomination. I said, Daddy, we can't do that. You know, I'm in my 20s. They're not going to trust me with it. You're a businessman. You've never pastored before. There is no way under heaven that that denomination is going to ask us to pastor Bethel temple. And he said, that's why we came with a one way ticket, you know? So I learned from my father, the fact that when God speaks to you, you just do it, whether it's possible or not, you just do the impossible. That's what he taught me. That's
0: amazing. So in the, in the natural fatherhood realm, What advice would you give to fathers in this day with all the the demasculination of all mankind, at least in this country?
1: Well, the first thing I tell them, know God, Hmm. you know, come to this altar and experience God because God is going to be the source of your life. That's what my father did. Hmm. My dad uh, was born into the home of a a saloon keeper. My my family ran what we call in Buffalo gin mills. They all had drinking establishments. And my dad was an alcoholic. They never went to church. They were a totally secular family. Uh, when they came over from Scotland, and Ireland, they, they were Presbyterian, but they soon left the church and were totally unchurched. He found Christ. And when he found Christ, everything changed. Uh, so he had the uh, ability as his father had uh, to uh, uh, to believe to believe anything could happen just just do it just get out there and do it make it work but on the other hand he learned to trust in God that he could do more than his father did because he had God and he combined those things to shape me into who I am and you you know you pretty well know me I'm not scared to do anything no definitely you know, I I am next year. Uh, let's see, next year I'll be, this year I'll be 89. Next year I'll be 90. And I am still doing stuff. Uh, I'm still traveling. Uh, At 90 years old, I am not afraid of life. My father taught me that. That's amazing.
0: That's amazing. And uh, and then last night we had a, a quick conversation about some other practical things that your dad taught you. I would love to get to those things really quickly. One of them was taught you
1: how to enjoy storms. My dad loved storms. When the lightning would start, he would say, put his coat on. Let's go look at God's wonders. And we would get in that 1937 Ford a long time ago. And I would be as a child scared, you know, all this stuff is coming at me. And and my mother was a little afraid of it. But my dad was not afraid of it. And my mother got like my dad because she was living around him. And there was not every time there was a storm, we went to enjoy it. That's awesome. It was not something to be scared of. And then when World War Two come came and it wasn't storms, it was air raids and we didn't know whether the planes were going to be German or Japanese or American overhead. And dad was an air raid warden and would leave mother, my mom and, my, and myself at home. And these planes would be flying overhead. And we never knew when, when a bomb was going to drop. That's the way it was in World War II. I learned not to be afraid because dad wasn't afraid.
0: So many in the last season and, and starting off this new season in America, around the world, have been uh, confronted by fear. Yeah. Fear of many different things, health, whatever, but fear that the church may be closed. Fear, fear, all of these things. Fear has it been at them, and uh, and how have you dealt with that, knowing that you have this background uh, of
1: combating fear all the time? That's probably the question of our age, isn't it? When you really think about the fact, the greatest, you know, it was I think it was Franklin Roosevelt said. The only thing to fear is fear itself. Because by automatically, we live in a day when, when fear rages in our culture. Fear, fear creates the thought process we have. It creates who we are and what we do. And somehow we have to face that. And I think we can only do it through the power of God. Uh, I, I was never thought you just don't. My dad never taught me. Not to fear because it's wrong to fear, but not to fear because God is with you and God is on your side. And there's a greater power inside of you than there is in the world. So the reason you don't fear is because of God. And, and walking in that path of that revelation that you just
0: said allows us to have uh, credibility in, in the world because we are countercultural. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what he's asking us to do in this hour, I believe.
1: Well, for me, uh, it was two things. It was, there's greater, he that's in you and he is in the world. And there is one factor that not only guides your life, but empowers your life. And that's destiny. You could get on a ship in my, my dad's and mother's idea. I was still traveling with him. I was in, in my early twenties and we traveled together as a team. And then later on with my stepmother, we got on a ship And we had a one-way ticket to the Philippines, and it didn't make any sense to me. Why in the world does my dad think that we can get on a freight ship and go all the way to the Philippines, a 21-day journey, and get there, move into some missionary's house, and hope he gives us a chance to preach in his church? What in God's name are we doing? This doesn't make any sense. But to my father, faith made sense. Mm -hmm. You don't do things because they add up. You do things because God says to do them. So God was saying, get on that ship and go to the Philippines. And we got there. And when we got off, I remember getting off the freight ship. And the missionaries with whom we were staying, with whom we were going to live, met us at the end of the gangplank. And the first thing they said to us is we have to leave and go home to America. Our daughter's getting married. And all of a sudden I realized, well, what are we going to do? Now, we don't have enough money to stay here. We don't have enough money to get home. What in the world are we going to do? This is, everything is wrong about this thing. Now, I'm not suggesting that faith is just doing the the stupid thing. I'm not suggesting that. But in my life, I learned that number one, the voice that spoke to us, is God, and you've got to take that to people and make sure that, uh, uh, that men of God and women of God who are around you feel that you're doing right. And then you can step out in faith. I was taught that by my father.
0: One of the things that my father taught me, uh, we, we worked on a lot of physical projects together. And uh, and to be able to use the to have the right equipment to do what we to accomplish the tasks that we're doing. And uh, and I remember doing a task at one point where I didn't have the right equipment and we stopped, went and got the right equipment to finish the task. And I think that oftentimes as the church, we feel like we aren't equipped to do the tasks that God's called us to do. But He always provides the right tools, the right place, the Holy Spirit, all the things we need to accomplish it, even if we don't see it in our midst when we start the project. Have you seen that in your life,
1: where well, God has just shown up with the right pieces at the right time? Well, yeah. I, I think the primary example of that life is the day when we got off the ship in the Philippines. And uh, uh, our desire was to be able to preach in the pulpit of Bethel Temple. It was the largest church in the denomination. It was built out of a healing revival. It had 7,000 members. It was jammed with people. Everybody wanted to preach there. Everybody wanted to pastor it. And we arrived, and the missionary meets us at the gangplank and says to us, I'm going home. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the way, one of the advantages you have is you can move into our house for a while. And the second advantage The two of you are gonna pastor Bethel Temple. Mm -hmm. Well, number one, what we're gonna do with church, a big church. I was in my 20s, I never pastored before. My dad was a businessman, was now preaching for the first time. He'd never pastored a church. Why does this make any sense? And then we sat down, the two of us, and we thought about something. My dad's a business person, he knows how to budget, He knows how to take a big corporation, make it work. He worked for General Motors. Then he worked for the Assemblies of God. He'd done this all of his life. He knew how to make the church worth financially and business-wise. I had spent my life all learning to preach so I could preach. My dad could give his testimony. He couldn't preach very well, but he could make everybody cry and make everybody come to the altar, and so we were kind of the ideal team. And we looked at each other and said, you know, this will work. God designed this. And at 20 some years of age, I became the pastor of the largest church in Donovan, I was, I think, 26 or 27 years of age. It made no sense in the natural, but God arranged everything for two stupid people that got on a ship, went to the Philippines with no money.
0: So. So we, we do what God says when he says to do it, no matter what it looks like.
1: I don't really suggest anybody
0: did what we did. That was a, that was craziness, but, <laughs> but you yeah, heard a word that's but the good the, we heard a word from God. Yeah. yeah. So when God speaks a word, we do what he says and we don't ask questions. So spiritually, so that's amazing stuff. Now, we have to look at the, the next season as being spiritual fathers, not just natural fathers. And I, I believe it's the same thing. We've got lots of people in the in the world that can source a child right Um, but a lot of people in the world don't stay around to provide for that child and i think that we've seen the same kind of thing in the church where we have we have missed the great opportunity to be able to father the fatherless the the orphans in the spirit and uh and i guess my question for you is as you've stepped in and and fathered me in different areas, and I've got other leaders that are doing the same thing. How do we as the church in 2021 father the next generation effectively in this next season?
1: I think that may be, be the question of the age. Uh, and I want to say two things to answer that question. Uh, you didn't tell me what you're going to ask me. But anyway, uh, we're just talking. Uh, I think there are two answers to the question, and the, the two answers I discovered in my life. Uh, the first is we have a problem in our world, a fatherless culture. I, I would dare say, if this is an ordinary church, if you took your youth group, there would be half of the kids, three quarters of the kids, who did not have an adequate father. They're being raised by the female, uh, they've been raised by their mother. Being raised by a stepmother, or a grandparent, or uh, they have a father who is an alcoholic or a drug addict. Uh, half of our, probably more than half, probably fifty percent of our children are being raised fatherless today. And do you know what the stats are?
0: I don't actually, but I, but, but, I, I assume you're probably correct. Uh, yeah,
1: from what I see in our culture, what I right, see in our church, right. yeah, for sure, that is what our culture is. Uh, now, if that's the problem, then God has to empower the men of our churches to be those spiritual fathers. When I came to Buffalo, and uh, uh, Joe down here in the front, well, will know who I'm talking about. Probably no one else will. Uh, uh, I said, God, the first, thing I, the first thing I did was I became the youth pastor. Uh, The church was running about uh, 80 or 90 people, so we didn't have an assistant, didn't have a secretary. I did the secretarial work, I did the typing, I made the bulletin, I passed to the church, I passed to the youth group, to the hospital. I did everything. I worked 18 hours a day, (laughs) and the church began to grow, and the first thing I did was I took over the youth group, and it grew immediately, Uh, It went from four or five kids to a 100 kids. I mean, we had the biggest youth group in the city of Buffalo. But I didn't know how to be a youth pastor. I'd never been a youth pastor. I'd been overseas and pastored a big church, but I had never been a youth pastor. And I suddenly discovered that I was dealing with kids, many of them, who didn't have, some of them had fathers, or they had alcoholic fathers, or they had fathers who, whatever uh, weren't giving them the spiritual, uh, uh, spiritual guidance they needed so I began to take the young men in that church and I began to be a father to them uh, I saw that as my role uh, some of them did have good fathers and I tried to be a spiritual father to them some of them just had fathers who were dysfunctional and some of them didn't have fathers that was the profile of the youth group I remember uh, uh, having a party one night at the house of one of our people and there were about 50 or 60 kids there and and of course usually when you have a party at a fairly wealthy man that has a has a nice uh, estate and everybody wants to come to that party so we had a large group of 50 or 60 kids. And I looked around and I saw a lot of young men I didn't know. And uh, uh, I saw one young man I didn't know. I uh, I walked up to him and I said, what's your name? He said, it's Larry. And I said, buddy, we got to get acquainted. So I'm going to come over to your house, pick you up, take you out for lunch or something. So I went over to his house and uh, it was in... Uh, I won't say the ghetto, but one of the roughest sections of Buffalo. Uh, I didn't know, seeing him at this elaborate farm, I didn't know who he was, where he lived, or who his father was, or who his mother was. Discovered that his mother was a a believer, and his dad was basically probably kind of an alcoholic, certainly. Not a real functional father. Became a functional father, but at that point was not. And uh, he didn't want to go with me. And the father said, I said, boy, he really looks like you. Well, wait till you see my other boy. And so out the door came this young 15 year old. And uh, man, he looked exactly. I said, boy, your dad is right. You look exactly like your dad. And I said, you want to go out for a cup of coffee? I'd never seen him before. And his name was Tom. And uh, uh young man in the front row probably know who I'm talking about. And uh, uh, I realized that he needed a spiritual father. And at that point, his father could not be that person. Uh, I was gonna have to be that person. The first thing I did with him uh, was I said, uh, Tom, uh, would you, would you like to go with me and make hospital calls? Remember, I'm the only pastor, I'm the youth pastor, I'm the visitor, I'm, I'm everything in the church and I'm working 18 hours a day and uh, uh, kind of like nice to have somebody in a car with you when you go to a hospital visitation. I'd have, I had eight or ten hospital calls to make it, And uh, I was pretty good at doing that. And so I took him with me, and at that point he was 15, not able to drive. And, and uh, he was really enjoying this, you know. He's kind of a professional now. He could put a coat on or whatever and pretend he's a preacher too. And, and uh, Now remember, he was a street kid. This was totally a different world for him, a totally different world, be a kind of an assistant pastor at 15 and go and visit the sick. Well, within eight or nine months, he got his license and now he drove for me. And uh, he began to emulate everything I did as a pastor. Then, then I got the funds together and sent him to Bible school. And he became an associate pastor of mine for the next 50 years. Uh, uh, one of my uh, hardest moments in life was the day when, when uh, staff changed and someone else took the church and they didn't keep him on staff. Uh, I still pick him up when we go visiting. After all these years, he's in his 70s. I'm close to 90 and we're still visiting together. Uh, even though now he goes to another church. He's still my son. I think that's the kind of relationship that I had with Donnie. Donnie was killed in Vietnam. I had with Eddie, he was killed in Vietnam. And during those years, I had to bury my boys. They were my kids. Uh, I think I learned through the Vietnam experience of losing my boys uh, that I took when they were 16 or 17 and took them to hospitals with me and, and uh, Took them down to meetings when we'd go and do youth meetings and then I have to bury them. I Remember doing Donnie's funeral They couldn't find Donnie. They never found him His body someplace in Vietnam And I still go by his grave once in a while. He's not there his body somewhere in Vietnam, but he was my boy. I think we have to adopt our kids because without us, they'll never become our replacements in the world. Does that make any sense?
0: Total. I mean, I'm tracking with you, and I can't understand what the emotions are that you're feeling even right now, but I can understand the premise of what you're saying. We see a great example of that in Scripture because Jesus said, I only do what I see the father do, and I only say what I hear the father say. And, uh, and I think that oftentimes we in life, uh, can get busy with our own families, our natural families, uh, and not take the time we need to, to impact spiritual families. And that's one thing I love about you is you didn't know me. You didn't, you were introduced to me. We worked on a project together and years later, look where we are. And I, and it's because you see something in me, uh, that gives you excitement.
1: Well, and let me tell you how I think, see you. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I do play the role of a spiritual father, uh, because God gave me that role. When I met you, I saw in you one of the, the most creative young Well, you weren't a pastor, a young preacher that I've ever met. And you are. You can do anything. You can do media. You can do preaching. And you're a great preacher. I listen to you. I know know how blessed these people are to have you. Um, Number one, if you're going to be a spiritual father, you're going to have to believe in the guy you're discipling. If you don't believe in him, leave him alone. Because you'll wreck him. You've got to believe in him. Every young man that I've ever, whether the ones we buried, uh, sometimes I I drive over in Hamburg and go to Lakeside Cemetery and drive by Donny's grave. He's not there. He was a big, tall uh, uh, Swedish boy, Scandinavian child. I watched him grow up from he was eight or nine years of age when I took the church go off to war and never come back. Uh, I remember taking him to the hospital to visit with me and he drove my car and he was a really great driver. He he never got near anything to hit it. I mean, he was perfectionist personified in driving. And uh, I go by that cemetery and think, I wonder if he's in heaven because of something I said. Uh, I think he is. Because the greatest privilege in the world is being able to be a spiritual father to Tom and to to Donnie and to Eddie and the ones I buried and the ones I still have.
0: I think that
1: this is something that the church has been missing. Well, I I think... I think the major problem in the church is we don't know who we are. We think we are an organization that sits in pews and looks at the back of somebody else's neck. If we, that's all we are, we come here and look at the back of somebody else's neck and watch you preach, then there's something wrong with the house, something wrong with the way we do church. Because the church by its very nature is called by Jesus a family. We are here to build relationships with each other. We minister not out of what we say, but we minister out of how we relate to each other. If I can't be your friend, forget being a pastor. If I can't be Donnie's friend or Tom's friend or Eddie's friend. If I can't remember the young man that I stood over their graves and buried them when they died in Vietnam. I have totally failed in life. I was more Donnie's friend than Eddie's friend. I was closer to him because that's the way it was in the youth group. But both of them were friends of mine. And so was Tom and, and so was Cheryl and all the others that I still have around me. And
0: all of them that you may never meet, um, but that I've gotten to meet, um, have said from the moment they met you that you've heard them you've cared for we them listen. And I, I think
1: fatherhood requires listening more than it requires saying it requires hearing the child whoever the child is and however old the child is I wish Amy were here to, to talk I'm not saying I'm a good father but she says I am And I think she says that to you and to people that talk about her dad. And I think the major quality I have is listening. I can attest
0: to that 100%. And, uh, and also I think one of the other, but
1: I'm interested in what you say. You're a genius. You can teach me.
0: But, but I think that one of the other things that, that I so value is not only do you listen, but you are able to speak into, uh, things that aren't here yet. And that's whenever I said in the beginning about calling out the destiny in someone as spiritual fathers or natural fathers, that's part of our that's part of our job is to see the see the destiny in someone and be willing to take the time to call it out and cultivate it. Uh,
1: I think you have to remember my experience. Uh, I grew up as a child at eight years of age. I go to an Assemblies of God church where my parents attended, go to the altar, and I have this amazing vision. I I can't even tell you how in the world God gave it to me. Nobody said something, nobody preached a sermon. I I was at that altar and I saw my life. I I saw a picture of my life. I saw the church I was gonna build. I saw I was gonna go overseas. I saw I was going to be, in those days we didn't have a television, but I saw I was gonna be in media. Uh, I saw, I literally saw my life in fact, I actually saw myself on television. I had never seen a television set. Uh, this was in the, the, the 40s. So I know this is in the 30s. I saw life as it was going to be for me. And I knew that was my life. I knew what I was going to preach. Now, I had a problem with that. The problem I had was that I was born an extremely shy person. I was scared to death of people. I loved the isolation of being in the car with my parents because I didn't have to face anything. I was scared of life. And they're constantly trying to shield me from it as well as teach me to handle it. And, and, and a parent who has a child who is like that, and I was a crippled child when it came to my personality. I, and I remember being in my bedroom one time and the all the executives of the denomination were in our living room. And uh, uh, my mother is talking to uh, a woman by the name of Charlotte. She is her husband is the assistant general superintendent of the Assemblies of God. And uh, I heard Charlotte saying to my mother. Now, Charlotte was interesting. Charlotte had been before she got saved. She'd been a vaudeville performer. I mean, she was still performing. (laughs) She was still this movie star that. Uh. That uh, everybody thought was, you know, that's Mrs. Burt Webb. She's the starlet of of headquarters. And so she's talking to my mom and she said, Sister Reed, uh, what's Tommy going to be when he grows up? My mother, oh, he's going to be a preacher. And I will never forget Charlotte's word to my mother. I'm hearing through the door. I'm in the bedroom. They think I'm going to sleep. I am listening to the conversation. Charlotte looks at my mother and said, "Don't ever, you don't let him say that, do you? You don't say he can do that." Mother said, "Of course. Oh, Sister Reed, you're going to wreck him. You're going to ruin him. He doesn't have the ability. Don't you understand? Your son is is a is a stutterer. He can't. He will never be able to preach a sermon. You're giving him false hope. And I'm sitting hearing this." the next morning I get out of bed and I said, mom, I heard what she said. I heard what, what Charlotte said. I called her by her last name, which I, in case somebody knows the family, I don't wanna, because course that's a lot of years ago, probably nobody knows <coughs> know them anyway. But I, I said, I heard what she said. I heard you also tell her I was going to preach. I said, who shall I believe? My mother looked at me, took took her finger in her nose and said, you're to believe God and what he says about you, not what anybody else says about you. I said, is she wrong? Absolutely, she's wrong. And your mother is right. Uh, I never had a doubt from that day on that no matter what my limitations were, I could do anything.
0: And what I value so much about our relationship is you see that no matter what the limitations would be in other people's lives, including my own, that it can still be accomplished because God has said it. And, and
1: so I'm appreciative of that. Yeah, I, I say it for two reasons. I first of all say it because I believe God said it. I believe God told you to do it. But I also believe you're capable of doing it. Yeah. And I think that that's... my mother believed I was capable of doing that. Right.
0: And I think that that is what sometimes when we lack the leadership of a father, whether it be natural or spiritual, we can have a hard time believing that we have
1: that capability to do that. A father by nature, and if fathers are listening to me, a father by nature has to be affirming. Now, I don't mean to tell your child he's going to be able to do something he can't do. I'm not giving false hope. I know that's always possible, but to be, give false hope. But at the same time, are you really giving false hope to tell somebody that through God, he can do anything? Yeah, I agree. I don't think so. Right. I don't think my parents were wrong in affirming me and telling me I could do anything. I've done about anything. In life. You have, you have for, for you sure. know, in my twenties, I pastored a 7,000 member church. By the time I got in my early 30s, I'm working with Dr. Cho and in building the church in Korea becomes the largest church in the world. I can't do that kind of stuff. I didn't have that ability in the natural, but I had to have somebody that was telling me that God is saying you can do anything because I've done what is impossible in life. Not because I knew how to do it. I... I don't know many men that are 90 years of age that are doing stuff like I'm doing right now. I, uh, I don't either. You know, we're planning another book. Why do you do that at 90 years of age? Because you can do anything. There you go. Why stop? Yes. Yes. And, uh, and so
0: I know as, as the time closes down here, um, I want you to just share your heart for the next season with our family, what you believe fatherhood means to the next generation and our our role in that as the church.
1: I think the church has to do two things. Number one, every man in the body of Christ needs to see himself as a father. You don't have any physical children, you can get spiritual children. The world needs a generation of fathers. And if I can encourage every man in this congregation and every person is hearing me over line. Encourage them to believe they can be fathers. I grew up as having a young man that everybody would know his name in this congregation, as my younger brother. He had lost his father. Uh, I first met him uh, when I moved to Springfield, Missouri. Uh, and I am now... 11 years of age. I've been taken out of my friends and all my surroundings and put on a Bible school campus where there's nobody my age. They're all older than I am. I have no friends. I'm away from all the friends I had, all the families, all my church, my school, everything. I'm in this strange world and there's not a single person my age around me. And I am, what in the world have my parents done to me? They taint me to this strange world. Uh, uh, people talk with this strange Missouri hillbilly accent. You know, uh, uh, I—I'd uh, never seen a pair of blue jeans. I grew up in a community where nobody wore blue jeans, uh, and I go to Missouri. Every child in the in the country school they put me in wore blue jeans. I didn't even know what they looked like and they took a baseball bat, put me on a baseball bat and carried me off and dumped me in the woods because I didn't part of their culture. So I was put in this strange culture and and realized, what am I going to do in a strange culture? And I would go home at night and uh, and my mother looked at me and she was an educator, she worked for Cornell University and she said, I can't leave my son there. So she went down and she wrapped the door on the Board of Education and said, I want to move my son to a city school. And she did. She she made way through the system and got me in a city school. And I was at home. I lived life because my mother cared that I was taken care of and had an, uh, an atmosphere I was around. In that kind of a world, I was raised. Parents that didn't protect me from culture, but parents that cared enough that they helped me through the cultural dilemmas of life. Did I answer your question, or did, did I take a rabbit trail? No, that's that's totally fine. I,
0: what what is the next season? You said every man needs oh, to know uh, okay. how to be a father.
1: Yeah, I, I think every man needs the man of the church because we have a a we have a fatherless generation, and b we're living in a world that's becoming scarier and scarier, it, uh, it's an alien world, especially to Christians. That's why the children we have in church need somebody to do what I did for Tom to pick him up, put him in their car and say, the world is going to be all right. And you can do something you've never done before. That's amazing.
0: Is there any other, any other advice or things that you would want to share with the summit family and those watching online that that you would see as an important
1: step in the next season well number one i would say this next season don't be afraid of it because greater is he that's within you than he that's in the world it's a season where we need the greater because the season we're getting into as it seems to be i'm not saying it's going to be that way but it seems to be becoming as a is, a, is a, a, a season of the unknown. Uh, what is it going to be like? None of us know that. We know it's going to be different. But we have a message in the church. That is absolutely essential for the season. And the message is. That when Jesus comes into our heart. When he comes into our heart. Something happens. In our heart. The greater comes into us. Uh, I'm going to share an experience that uh, I don't want to be misunderstood but let's go back to World War II I'm a young man 10, 11 years of age growing up in a scary world are the Japanese going to take our country over the Germans going to take our country over we're going to be flying Nazis swastikas they're more powerful than we are we can't get enough planes and boats and ships to be able to fight in the battlefields we've got to fight in. my world is coming to an end everything I know is about to collapse on me and I often am amazed at the way my parents handled that uh, I remember my dad said uh, to my mother and to me I uh, you know, I've got to do something about this war. I, I've got to fight for my country, but I, I can't kill anybody, so I'm a conscientious objector. And And I remember him becoming the laughing stock because he said he was a CO. Well, he didn't want to be a CO. It, he just didn't know that he could hand-to-hand combat to kill somebody. So he said, I will do anything for my country, except I, I can't do that. So I'll, I'm the chef, I will donate my services. And he went to the draft board and tried to sign up. Because he was a big, brave, uh, he was a prize fighter, a football player. He wasn't scared of any enemy. And, uh, but he was trying to be a Christian in the midst of this cultural battle that was going on. I remember sitting by the radio wondering, when his name would be called to be drafted and when I was going to lose him. And I knew that I faced the loss of a father who was very strong, who was very loving, who was very kind, and what was life going to be without him? Because everybody around me were losing their fathers. They were dying on the battlefields. What was my life going to be like? remember gathering with my parents around the radio and listening to Franklin Delano Roosevelt I heard that statement we have nothing to fear but fear itself and I thought you know he's really right why am I afraid because every night my mother and father were telling me you don't have to be afraid because God is within you I got through it. We all got through it. Some of my friends died. The boys I sat on the, ground, the floor and played checkers with and played whatever with. The boys I played baseball with. The older ones, many of them never came home. Did God protect me from that? I, I don't think so. I just was the right age. My dad was too old and I was too young but I watched the God of the universe save our country. And if I had anything to say to anybody, I would say being through that, and I know we're facing a lot of internal battles and we've got all things, and we're scared of what's gonna happen to our country. I could tell you by being there and watching a battle that there was no way to win to watch God being sovereign. And we won the battle. Yes, we lost a lot of lives. But today you and I live in a free country because of God. And let me close the story. The secret of World War II. I don't know how we got to World War II, but uh, you know we are facing another battle. We're facing a world that's becoming very scary as it was in my world. In 1941 and 42 and 43 and I was old enough to remember I was 9 10 11 12 years of age and it was it was it was fearful to be alive but we were about to lose World War II for several reasons the enemy was in Europe and the enemy was in Asia how were we going to get the battle supplies to the battlefields of the world It wasn't. We don't fight. We didn't fight battles on computers. There were no computers. We were fighting with weapons and guns and munitions. I mean, we were fighting the old fashioned kind of battles then. How were we going to do it? And the president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, knew that he was leading a country that was going to lose the war. And they were going to lose the war because there was no way to get the troops and the battles fields, the troops and the munitions to the battlefields of the world. We're going to lose the war. And he calls a man to his office by the name of Henry Kaiser. You'll read this in your history books. The father of the Kaiser Fraser automobile, since I'm a car collector, the builder of dams and roads, and, but a genius calls Henry Kaiser of the White House, and he said, Henry, we're going to lose this war if somebody doesn't build us three or four hundred ships to get the supplies. Can you build me ships? (laughs) Henry Kaiser looks at him and said, I've never built a ship in my life. I build roads. I don't build ships. Why don't you go to the, the ship manufacturers? They've all told me they can't do it. Henry Kaiser stood to his feet, and these were his exact words. If nobody can do it, then I'll do it. And he walked out of the White House, determined to build the ships. The problem was that Henry Kaiser had an idea. The idea was to build them, instead of it taking a year to build a ship, he wanted it to take a week to build a ship. Shorten the the time of building a ship from a year to a week. And the only way they could do that was to build it upside down and then flip the hull over and put the superstructure on. That way you could build them in an assembly line. Everybody told them it couldn't be done. And the reason it couldn't be done is nobody could discover a weld that was strong enough to keep the hull together when they flipped it over. You can read this in your history books. But I'm going to tell you a part of the story that nobody's heard. Uh, and so he had the he walked out of the White House with this idea: I can make them in an the assembly line. I can flip them over. But then he discovered somebody has to have a weld to hold them together, and nobody knows how to do it. Now, I don't know if there's a welder here, and there. I don't know the science to all this. If there's a welder here, but this is the story. He didn't know how to. Do the weld. And so he called up a man by the name of R.G. Letourneau. R.G. Letourneau was the maker of earth moving equipment that really built the highway systems in America. All the big machines that used to see building the, the super highways we have today They were made by R.G. Letourneau. And so we called R.G. and he said, uh, R.G., uh, uh, brought him to the White House and he said to R.G., I need somebody to make me make us three or four hundred ships. But the problem is everybody said it can't be done. And R.G. Ternos or, or Henry Kaiser said, if it can't be done, then I'll do it. So he called R.G. Letourneau and he said, uh, I've got to find a weld that's big enough to hold the ship together. Nobody knew how to do the weld. And finally, uh, Henry Kaiser picked up the phone and called the other man, R.G. Letourneau. And he said to him, R.G., told him the problem, we need a weld. And suddenly the voice went silent at the other end. Now this story has never been written. I was sitting with the grandson of R.G. Letourneau at Holiday Inn in Buffalo, New York. And I said, I've got a question for you. Your dad knew Henry Kaiser, right? Oh yeah, they were the best of friends. I said, my first question is, did he ever lead him to the Lord? And he said, well, I don't know that. I know he prayed with him, but I don't know whether he led him to the Lord. I said, well, I've got another question for you. Can you tell me if R.G. Letourneau, your grandfather, had anything to do with the liberty and victory ships of World War II? Oh, yes, he said. My dad had a lot to do with it. He said, Henry Kaiser called my father and said, we're gonna lose this war if somebody doesn't have a weld that's proper, because the only way we can build these ships is to build them in a similar line and then flip them over. and And if we can't find a weld, can't be done. And suddenly the phone went silent and R.G. Letourneau said, you won't believe this. But God awakened me the other night with a dream. And in a dream, he showed me how to do that weld. The weld was the result of a supernatural miracle. A supernatural miracle that's not in any of the history books. Told to me by the... The grandson of R.G. Letourneau, that miracle that kept those ships and enabled the building of those ships was a miracle of God with a prayer, a a man, a prayer.
0: Amazing. And uh, and as we know, God is the God of doing the
1: impossible. Yeah. And And, and that's the part. If if God can show. uh, A businessman, a well. That will be the secret of winning a war. God can take somebody in this audience today that seems to think they're nothing and make them literally change history. There can be somebody here in this building that can change history someday. But if you don't change history, you can change the world. If you don't change history, you can change a city. If you don't change history, you can change a family. If you don't change history, you can change a life. And hence the importance of fatherhood. That's the importance of fatherhood. You shape the next generation.
0: Well, I would ask you as we close, would you pray over this house and uh, close us today? And and I would close with this story.
1: I am who I am today because of my father and because of a spiritual father. My spiritual father was a man by the name of Lester Sumrall. Uh, I was extremely close to Lester because uh, when we went to Manila, Bethel Temple, which he built, grew. So uh, uh, something in me he picked up at that point and said, called me aside and said, I'm going to be a spiritual father to you. And he was. I would travel with him and uh, we'd check in a motel and I'd get my room, he'd get his room, and, and uh, when we were unpacking the suitcases, my phone would ring in my room, and he said, Tommy, when you get through unpacking, come on over and see me. We'd have dinner together, and then we'd go back to his room, and, and he would begin to tell me the stories of the miracles in Tibet. He'd begin to tell me the stories of the building of Bethel Temple. He'd begin to tell me the stories of all the things that had happened in his life. And there were times in my life when I would I'd be at the end of myself trying to build the church in Buffalo. You know, remember, my life was this kaleidoscope of great events. The first 10 years pastoring the large church. helping show build the church. All the things I was doing in those first 10 years, I came to an abrupt standstill in Buffalo. I knew God had called me there, but nothing was happening and the church wasn't growing. And I was give, getting ready to give up the ministry. And when I would be ready to give up, I would say, what in the world has gone wrong with life? My first 10 years were a bit of heaven. My next years now are a time of hell. What, what, what's wrong with life? And then I think, I've got to go see Brother Sumrall. Pick up the phone. and He had come back, and he would built a... In fact, he came to Buffalo when he didn't know where to go. Uh, he he'd was through pastoring the Church of Manila. He'd given the church in, in South Bend to someone else. And he came to Buffalo when he would walk the streets, and he'd say, Tommy, I don't even have a... Here I built two of the largest... Re, uh, churches in the world and I have nothing left at all and, and we'd walk around the streets of Buffalo and, and we'd pray together where he should go should he go to New York should he go to South Bend should he go back to Mano what should he do with his life and I watched him rebuild the television empire and the, everything that he had when he died and uh, so I'd get discouraged and I'd call him I said, Brother Soma, I'm not doing well. Nothing's going right in my life right now. And I need you. He'd say, well, get an airplane ticket. Just just come out. You get here, I'm here. And I'd arrive in South Bend. And uh, if I flew, maybe I rented a car. He'd pick me up and walk into his house. And he'd take me to the guest room. And He said, as long as you want, I'm here. And something about the faith of that man as a spiritual father. One day with him and life had changed. Somehow he had a a capability of putting his arm around me. Uh, I, I miss it terribly because he's in heaven. I hope he hears this. He put his arm around me and said, I know you. He wouldn't cry with me. He wouldn't uh, tell me everything's going to be all right. He would make me know that I was in the will of God and things were going to be all right. The day that he died, I lost my father. My physical dad is my spiritual dad. And now I have to be that. Where does an 89 year old man find a father? Nobody old enough to be that anymore. But there's a lot of young men like me that need that in the world. And just maybe I would never be me. I'd never have built the church. I would have never done what I've done in life. If a man hadn't put his arm around me. and Said I'll be your dad. I will always be grateful. To one of the greatest men that ever lived. That put his arm around me and said I'll be your father father I don't know what Lester Seminole meant to his boys maybe I do because I know them but I know what he meant to me and Lord I hope that 40 years from now that maybe a child that's in this room or a child that's not in this room will look back and say if it weren't for the pastor of this church who put his arm around me and made me believe in myself that I never could have been a man of God. Help us to understand as men that there are Toms and there are people in our lives in the future. That will change the world because we love them i thank you lord there's nothing greater in my life than the privilege to be a father and i pray when i die that they will stand by my casket and thank god for a father in jesus name Amen.
0: If you enjoyed today's message, I would like to encourage you to like it and share it on all social media platforms or jump on the website, thesummitdover.com or the app and click the giving link and help us continue to share the message of the kingdom across the world. God bless you and have an awesome week.